Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, host and creator of this amazing program known as The Takeout. As you well know, we typically do our show at a restaurant. That's no longer possible. We're all dealing with the new realities, COVID-19, working from home. A lot of technical issues related to this show. I won't bore you with them. Let's just say it's kind of a Herculean effort and technology will out if you work on it long enough. (laughs) Our special guest this week is David Simon. If you know anything about procedural crime television, meaning shows like The Wire, Homicide, Life on the Street, The Corner, etc., etc. You are well acquainted with his award-winning and memorable and brilliant work. David, it's great to have you on the show. Nice to meet you for the first time. You and I have never met, though we are sort of, at least age-wise, many contemporaries. I guess so. Yeah, it is a delight. Thank you for your interest. So uh, I want to talk a little bit about the show that you currently have on HBO. We'll get back to Homicide, Life on the Street, The Corner, The Wire, but uh, The Plot Against America, two episodes so far. I've watched them both. Let my audience know a little bit about what that show is and what you hope it conveys, or if you hope it conveys anything about our current times. Uh, I would say if it fails to convey anything about our current political moment, um, I had no business doing it. Um, (laughs) since it's about uh, the 1940s in America. Uh, So if it doesn't work allegorically to what we're going through right now, um, I'm wasting everyone's time. Um, It's a book by Philip Roth in which he imagined an alternative history in which uh, Charles Lindbergh, the great aviator, defeated Franklin Roosevelt in the 1940 election and turned the country not only away from uh, support for Britain uh, against uh, uh, Hitler's Germany uh, at the beginning of World War II, um, but also turned America towards totalitarianism and, and, and used um, the othering of vulnerable cohorts. In that case of the book, it was Jewish Americans in 1940. But obviously the allegory would be to, to other cohorts today, but he used those things to get the country to support, to support him and let him uh, accrue and maintain political power. When you went to Philip Roth, uh, who wrote the book in 2004, and for some critics at that time, there was a sentiment that it might have been allegorical about the George W. Bush years, how quaint that seems now in retrospect. Yeah. Um, how did you approach him about this, and was there any hesitation he had on seeing this particular work brought to miniseries television? No, he, I mean, he had some concerns, and he, he had notes he wanted to give me as, as I pursued the project, but I, I, by the time I reached him, uh, the book had been out for option for a while, and, and, and I think it was fairly well understood, not the least of which was by Mr. Roth, that he had somehow, without trying to, had written an allegory for, for our current times. He understood exactly where his novel uh, traced the rise of Donald Trump and of um, some of the factors that, that led to uh, Trump's uh, election in 2016. Um, he saw it right away. Uh, he, he would readily confess that he, um, he wasn't writing towards 
Trump. And in fact, he argued that he wasn't really writing towards uh, George W. Bush at the time. He was speaking in, in reflection on how susceptible dem- democracy and, and our republic is to a demagogue and to demagoguery as a whole and, and how vulnerable we are to some very anti-democratic processes uh, if we allow it. Um, but he, you know, he, he would throw up his hands and say, look, I didn't see Trump coming. And in fact, one of the things he warned me about was that on a personal level, uh, to equate Charles Lindbergh with Trump is, is a little bit fraught because, well, you know, there's no other way to say this, but Lindbergh was a hero. He, he really had genuine uh, personal courage. He flew the Atlantic in an extraordinary way 13 years earlier. Uh, he, had, he was self-effacing. He had charm. He had a Midwestern's uh, cowlick uh, and smile. Uh, yes. And he was one of the greatest heroes in America at the time that Roosevelt came to fear him as a possible opponent, political opponent in 1940. You know, uh, Mr. Trump has had a, uh, a reality show and he's been a real estate magnate and he's, he's run some casinos into the ground, but he doesn't quite compare in that, in that sort of biography. He does not compare. And um, David, as we discuss things, I will introduce uh, on a somewhat timely basis, I hope, and not overwhelm you or the audience, some connective tissue between our lives that you have no reason to know about, but I think sure. uh, connect us in a way that uh, I found surprising. Start one. My elementary school was Charles Augustus Lindbergh Elementary School in San Diego, California. Uh, the airport in San Diego is named after Charles Lindbergh. Um, he was for all of San Diego and all of my youth, nothing but a hero. I knew nothing of and didn't learn anything and wasn't inculcated anything other than this amazing aviator who revolutionized not only commercial aviation, but uh, uh, mail by air. Um, Two things that we now take for granted, but at the time were nothing short of revolutionary. And he was the reason uh, they happened. Uh, Second bit of connective tissue. Uh, My best friend in life who I met in second grade grew up in Baltimore, uh, Towson, just south of Towson University, named Steve Albrecht. Uh Last bit of connective tissue, and I won't bore you with any more. I was a cop reporter for the first four years of my newspaper career, uh, two, t- two different cities, Amarillo, Texas, and uh, Las Vegas, Nevada. And my best friend grew up to be a beat cop, and so did his wife. Um, ah. So I know a little bit about that world, a little bit, not nearly as much as you, but a little bit about it. I know enough about it to appreciate the work you've done. We'll get to that crime drama stuff uh, again in a moment. As you see uh, the plot against America unfold, and as the audience sees it unfold, do you consider it um, a cautionary tale or a tale that we are in the process of living and there is no caution about it anymore? Um, I, I don't think, you know, if you're waiting for the, um, for the story to be subtle about the comparisons to the first three years of this uh, current administration, you're, you're going to be disappointed. Uh, not because we're writing in, in capital letters or, 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 two or three fonts too big, but because um, the fundamental points of the novel have already been achieved uh, by reality uh, since 2016. The misuse of vulnerable cohorts to excite and metastasize fear on the part of um, American voters um, is magnificently portrayed in, in Roth's novel. And I, I hope we did we did justice to it in the miniseries. Uh, it uh, you know the allegory is not that that Trump is anti-Semitic or anti-Jewish, um, although 
you know, whenever you release intolerance as a political, uh, as political fuel, that train's never late. There's always room for some Jew hate. But no, the, the, the cohorts that, that this administration has used to uh, excite its base and, and to utilize fear as a means of governing has been, you know, black and brown people, immigrants, Muslims, um, those people who can be successfully othered in American society and who are most vulnerable in American society uh, in our current time. And the manner in which Lindbergh does that in the miniseries to Jewish Americans and very quickly delivers a verdict that they're not, they're either not first-class citizens, if they are citizens, or if they're immigrants, they're not sufficiently worthy of becoming uh, Americans, that that their loyalty can be held suspect, that their capacities for citizenship are less than, less than our own. Um, that's precise. That's what we've, we witnessed that at the airports within the first weeks of this administration. Uh, we've seen it at the southern border. Uh, we've seen it in the campaign rhetoric. Um, you know, Roth nailed it. And the phrase um, of the committee that Charles Lindbergh was a member of. America, America First. first com- America yeah. First Committee. Uh, And uh, that is part and parcel uh, taken entirely of without any hesitation, without any sense of the historical importance or meaning of that and rebranded as a utterly acceptable America political slogan. It's astounding. I mean, I don't even think if Roth, when he was writing this novel, uh, and I have no reason to speculate about it, he's a man of letters, I'm not, but I, w- I wonder if he even in his wildest of imaginations thought that that would happen, that I, I don't actually think that could. slogan would be taken and then repurposed. I mean, he's, he had a lot to say about Donald Trump in 2016, and, and, and he was astounded that it didn't require a hero in order for these fears to be used as political capital. And America first, the idea that that would be resurrected, I think, that, I, I think you're right, that even eludes him. That phrase was, uh, was consigned to the ash heap of history the moment the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. Everybody who was an America firster was um, tarnished in, in, their, in, their, in their words and deeds for the duration of the war. Um, and and you know, Lindbergh the, disappeared let, let, from public view after that. And let's, let's pause for a second, David, to help my audience catch up because some of my audience is a little on the younger side of the spectrum and may not have a sense of what that was about. And help my audience understand there were two strains in that. One was about Jewish Americans, the other, but that was, if you'll allow me uh, this perspective, subtler than we're against going into World War II and another European entanglement. And there was in the country either a sense of fatigue, exhaustion, or just revulsion at World War I. And these things kind of played together, and one was more dominant than the other, but one pulled the other along, is my perspective. But I want to leave that territory wide open for you. That's right. I guess the equivalent now would be, in peacetime, it would be economic anxiety. Uh, you could say that economic anxiety is the genuine isolationism uh, in, in the allegory with with. Lindbergh and Roosevelt, which is to say there were legitimate people um, who were not trucking with anti-Semitism or uh, with, with xenophobia who wanted to argue that we shouldn't be involved in a second European war. And they made that argument and they were um, personally free of, of accusing Jews of Jewish Americans of being disloyal, 
uh, or plotting with the British or with the Roosevelt administration to, to lure us into a war. They were capable of maintaining that policy uh, independent of, of, of sort of the worst element. Um, they were also wrong. Uh, knowing what we know of Hitler and what he was about to do to Europe in terms of turning it into a charnel house, they were, you know, they were, they were empirically wrong about what America needed to do when faced with that kind of uh, um, threat to humanity. Um, but there was some genuine connection. Listen, 60% of the country at some point was isolationist in the run-up to World War II. They didn't want it to be pulled into that war. Um, so, yeah, in the same way that there may be some people that would be decidedly uncomfortable with the racism and the um, anti-immigrant xenophobia that's been unleashed um, by the Trump administration, who, are, who genuinely believe with some of the economic message that was delivered in the campaign. But they're walking hand in hand with a lot of ugliness right now. Mm-hmm. And like you said, economic anxiety slash globalism is kind of the allegorical equivalent of uh, involvement in another European war. Um, and this idea of globalization or globalists are those who are part of a vast system that is distant from you, other from you, and not looking out for your best interest. Those things walk side by side, it seems to me. Right. And, and you are the Americans that we really, t- you're the real Americans. These other people, these newest, newer arrivals, these people who don't look like you, these people who have more melanin, these people who uh, don't worship uh, your God in the same way that you worship your God, these people who uh, come from places where there are the most um, randomized references to terrorism uh, that can be heaped upon anybody who ever, you know, in that region of the world. Um, I mean, you saw it with regard to the Syrian refugees when that, that uh, human rights disaster was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it is still going on in Europe, and the absolute indifference to America's responsibility to share in the in the um, in the response to that in terms of taking in immigrants, and you know, th- there's a sense of whatever the, your worst fears are about somebody different from you or the place they come from, we can use that, and we can use that for political capital, and that is that is the plot against America uh, as Roth wrote it. And that's why the book, uh, once we watched what was happening with the Trump administration, uh, became a very sought-after property for, um, and, for adaptation. And in my research, it's, I came across the, that, that Philip Ross said the idea came from, for the book came from going through some of the underlying uh, documents or memoirs of Arthur Schlesinger Jr. talking about that this was a notion. It's alternative history for sure, but it's not that far out of what was discussed at the time that this didn't happen, but it could have happened. Uh, yes. Yes. Uh, Roosevelt was genuinely worried about Lindbergh of all people running against him in 1940. That was, was running for an unprecedented third term as president. Uh, so there was some opposition fundamentally that this was something that Washington as the first president had refused to do, go to a third term. Roosevelt felt, felt as if he would be vulnerable, to one candidate above them all, outsider, no, no political experience, great celebrity. And, and he felt as if this is the one guy who could beat me. Um, when Lindbergh decided not to accept the Republican uh, nomination, which was offered to him by party leaders, uh, it fell to Wendell Wilkie and, and 
Roosevelt made short business of him. But yeah, he was very worried about fact after Pearl Harbor, when Lindbergh uh, volunteered his services to the armed forces, um, Roosevelt was very careful to marginalize him to be an expert in aviation. He sent him on inspection tours. He, he made him sort of a, a, an advisor without portfolio and sent him not to Europe, but to the Pacific and told, and told his generals, don't let him get into combat. Uh, as it happened, Lindbergh did manage to sneak into combat and he shot down some Japanese planes. But even when he did, uh, Roosevelt made sure there was no publicity about the missions. Um, he, he was worried about Lindbergh uh, even into 1942. And one of the things that I found particularly interesting about the two episodes so far, two things. One, the brevity and repetitiveness of Charles Lindbergh's campaign speech to the incredulity of those within the Jewish community that you that the show features prominently in New Jersey. And the idea discussed on stoops out front of the houses is this couldn't happen. Well, I won't say because I know you know that I did cover the Trump campaign considerably. Uh, those speeches aren't short, but they had similar dominant repetitive themes. And there was also great incredulity everywhere we traveled. Uh, could this happen? Those themes jump out, I think, anyone watching The Plot Against America. And, and we, didn't, we didn't graph those on to Roth's logic. Roth speaks of the 41-word speech that Lindbergh made at every, at every whistle stop. Uh, Roth also, in giving an interview of Trump shortly after the election, uh, he claimed, uh, I think he was being hyperbolic, but he's a man who has a 270-word vocabulary. Um, he saw the same things in terms of the reduction of complicated ideas and complex circumstances in the world to simple sloganeering and sloganeering that created simple and uh, available enemies um, for people as being um, indicative of, of our worst political um, moments. That's, you know, nothing is more demagogic than a guy who claims he has every answer and the answer can be, delivered to you in a single sentence. So let's jump ahead. Not Donald Trump. Right. So let's jump to our current times uh, to talk briefly about the things you just described about Donald Trump. Uh, You know, as well as I do, those are broadly held observations, uh, even from people who are general fans of the president's on the political Republican side of the aisle, they'd note those uh, either strengths or deficiencies. How do you think those characteristic traits of the president are holding up or not in this current COVID-19 crisis? Well, by the poll numbers, uh, it seems the more that he gets out every day in front of a briefing and and be clowns himself with misinformation and random simplifications of a very complex public health problem and, and with, you know, and with his absolute failure to understand basic epidemiology. Uh, he's doing fine. The, po- the poll numbers have recovered as long as he gets out there and speaks simply, if correctly, on a, on a multitude of points regarding this pandemic. It seems as if he can sustain himself politically. Terrifying notion, but that seems to be what's happening. And uh, how are you holding up through all of this? Has this changed your life, uh, your family's life, your friends' lives? I'm doing the same thing everyone else's. We're staying in place, the kids' home. Uh, I'm learning how hard it is to be a teacher in America. Uh, uh, you know, uh, the restaurants aren't open. I'm going to the carryout window. Uh, you know, we're all in this. We're all doing the same things. 
Most and, and, for all, and for all the right reasons, um, we had a therapist on last week, uh, Lynn Bufka, who lives in Silver Spring, Maryland. She's got a very high position in the American Psychological Association, and she gave a very helpful bit of advice. So don't think of this as you being punished or you being isolated. You're doing something to help the community at large by staying out of the way, not getting sick, and staying at home. So uh, our country is built... It's a very, uh, a very socialistic notion. Uh, I'll say. <laughs> it's a very <laughs> socialistic notion that... I believe I believe we're all in this together is uh, almost a defining principle of socialism. So no, no I'll, doubt. I'll say no, no more. Exactly. I understand that. I understand that. And we are a go, go, go country. But right now we need to sit, sit, sit. Um, yeah. And that's that's an adjustment for us all. So, David, I want to talk to you about the thing that is probably your best known work. I wonder if it's the work you're most proud of, um, it, whether it is or isn't. Uh, I, I'm just curious. The Wire. Uh, and before that, homicide, life on the street, the corner—they're all—they're—they're they're of a piece, but they're different entities in different places. Um, I'm in the process, midway through your book, homicide, life on the street, and it is whatever all the critics said about it, among the most brilliant pieces of work I've ever written, I've ever read, rather, about the life of homicide detectives. Um, tell my audience a little bit about that project, how it began, and how it spawned this new life of yours uh in the world yeah. of television yeah, yeah there was no plan I, I i was a newspaperman in baltimore and uh at some point the police department agreed to let me into the homicide unit for a year uh, and let me follow the detectives there and i did and uh, it goes back to 1988 and uh, after spending a year uh with a uh, one shift of the de of detectives i wrote a book and it got bought by uh, barry levinson the the director from baltimore the film director and it was made into an NBC show. And then as a happenstance, I learned how to write television uh, from that. I never really thought that I was going to leave newspapers. Uh, that was my plan. I thought, well, I'll write a script or two and I'll learn a new skill set. But as it happened, uh, I guess I got seduced. And it, it didn't help that my newspaper was bought by a chain. A lot of the bad things that started happening in the newspapers started happening to the Baltimore Sun. Mm -hmm. So I ended up, at some point I looked up and, you know, I was, uh, I was a TV or a TV hack, um, but I was taught well <laughs> by the people who, who trained me. And um, when HBO arrived and the premium cable channels, suddenly you didn't have to appease advertisers. You didn't have to sell so much redemption or comedy or pretty people or things blowing up. You could sort of write a more adult story and there were no commercials. So um, I didn't have to sell. I didn't have to stop every 13 minutes and sell stuff to people. And, uh, and that was The Wire. So, yeah, The Wire did well after it was off the air. Uh, while we were on the air, nobody watched it. Uh, everybody in, in the ensuing decade, people caught up to it on DVD and, and on streaming. That's how people are watching it now. And, and that's been true of all the projects since then. Uh, I'm very proud of The Wire. I'm proud of all the projects. You know, you're proud of all your kids. And right. in some ways, uh, it's a lot easier to write uh, episodes about you know, cops and robbers, even though we were, we were trying to say something very critical about the drug war and about American cities and institutions. You know, but, but, yeah. Institutions. But it was, you know, it was a very political piece, but I, I will say when you have people with a gun in their hands um, and you have a certain degree of uh, necessary and residual violence, it's a lot easier to keep an audi uh, an audience than when you have a, a trombone in a guy's hand or, or the purpose of the pieces discuss to discuss a, uh, hyper-segregation in America and federal housing policy. Uh, some of the later pieces, I think, actually are more carefully constructed and 
um, and achieve your goals. And the goals are in, in a weird way more ambitious because they're, they're more elusive. They're, they're, they're less about what TV often attempts to do. So I have some affection for the, for the kids that nobody loves as well. Mm-hmm. You mentioned almost offhandedly, I became a TV writer. Was that difficult? Um, I had to learn, uh, you know, I tended to write too much dialogue. I tended to write too long. I tended to use much description, which, you know, which is, um, if you think about it, it's an insult to your casting director and your art director. Um, uh, you know, I wrote like a prose writer. Um, mm-hmm. I was good with dialogue because that's something I, I had a good ear as a newspaperman. So, um, I could, I could recreate dialogue in a, in a, in a, in a decent way. The, the books are kind of dialogue heavy. The ones that I wrote and my magazine work was dialogue heavy. Sure. But sure. Pacing but, but I mean, having, pacing having been a, a police reporter, uh, that's great dialogue. If you get a chance to be around it and I was never yeah. as immersed as you were, but as every young reporter did uh, covering any police beat, uh, I did ride alongs uh, and a ride along is fundamentally different than a year in a homicide division. No question about that, but you do get a little bit of the patter of the feel the break room or um, what it sounds yeah, this, like when cops talk to each other on the radio, things like that. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, you, you, the more, the longer you can stay, the more you pick up. I mean, I had, I had a ride along that went along for, you know, weeks and months and years. And, and I'd say that probably the best thing that happened is that about three months in, they just stopped caring that I was there. You know, mm-hmm. you, you can pretend to be who you don't, you can pretend to be who you want to be for a week or two. After somebody's following you around for three months, you just don't care anymore. No. That was a great gift. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. One thing I'd like you to try to communicate to our audience, because I think those uh, who were not alive then have a hard time wrapping their mind around it, how prevalent uh, dangerous crime was in that period of time, um, 80s and 90s, um, particularly in urban America. It wasn't as prevalent in the two places where I was a police reporter, Amarillo, Texas, very different kind of vibe entirely. West Texas, uh, most of the crime was drifters who came in and left or came in and stayed and did something awful. Las Vegas, a very different kind of vibe in the 80s, the kind of the death of the, uh, the dying days of the mob and the elevation of sort of corporate Las Vegas with oddball crimes there, but nothing like a big urban center. And I remember when I was moving to Washington in late late 1989, I got a copy of the Washington Post and the Washington Times. And in that year, 1989, there were more than 500 murders in Washington, D.C., more than there were days in the calendar. That was when cocaine hit. Yeah. Yes. It was the Um, first wave of, of cocaine. Uh, and, not just and I crack, for, but also speed balls and, 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 and try to try to describe the magnitude of that drug chore. Um, well, I, I guess I'll do it by just saying something sort of pharmacological, which is that a heroin addict is a very stable creature for the most part. I mean, he needs to get ten dollars in the morning, and he needs to get ten dollars at night, and anything after that is cake. But he needs to maintain. But you know, once he goes up to the corner and cops, he's going to go into a nod. He's you know he's Heroin is a, a depressant, maybe maybe the ultimate depressant as as, as an opiate. Um, cocaine is not; it's a metabolite. And somebody who's chasing coke in those years, if he had fifteen hundred dollars in his pocket, he was going to go up to the corner and without sleeping and spend all of it, or a lot of them were. So the corners became extremely volatile, uh, and there was a pharmacological change that kept going until 
until really until the, the Coke wave burned itself out because what any uh, addiction therapist will tell you is that you can't go on Coke forever and eventually you start shooting speedballs and eventually you, you end up on heroin. So, you know, it wasn't a failure of policing and it wasn't that one police chief didn't figure out or two police chiefs didn't figure out how to police drugs. It was that there was a pharmacological change on the drug corners and it changed the nature of violence. It made everything more volatile. Uh, and those were very high years for violence, particularly, I, I, I know specifically of the East Coast, Baltimore, New York, Washington. Now, Baltimore has some of the highest rates of violence ever right now, but that has less to do with the pharmacological. Now we've just lost control of the city in a very fundamental way because of everything that's happened to the police department and the, and the, the, the governing culture of the city in the wake of Freddie Gray. Continue that thought. Uh, when you say in the wake of Freddie Gray and losing control of the city, what does that actually mean? Well, um, one of the problems with policing the drug war is that it makes you into a, an army of occupation. Um, if you're policing drug-saturated neighborhoods, you're basically pol policing the only economy that's been left in those neighborhoods, where everybody in, in the family, uh, everybody knows somebody who is employed or whose life revolves around the, the three-corner drug trade, which is you know, a billion-dollar enterprise in Baltimore. So you have a situation where you're basically going up. You might as well be policing Soweto pre-apartheid or, or, or Gaza now uh, as, as the IDF. I mean, you're, you're an army of occupation. Um, and the alienation is fairly complete. And so you end up with levels of brutality in the policing that eventually produce um, casualties. Uh, Freddie Gray uh, was unsecured in the back of a wagon. What happened to him there is still open to debate, but at the very least, uh, they didn't attend to him, and they rode him around the city for 45 minutes while he was dying of a neck injury um, and didn't check on him. And so when that came out, there was finally an explosion, and there was finally, for lack of a better word, a riot, an uprising, if you want to be politically correct or, or leftist, but I don't much care. Whatever it was, it, it had all the sights and smells of a riot against the police overreach, and rightly so. Um, at least the complaint was right. And then something really bad happened, which was rather than attend to the genuine complaints that under, undergirded that action by the, by, by in Baltimore, the protest stopped with the indictment of not only the officers for the negligence in the back of the wagon, but for making the arrest in the first place. And that was an overreach on the charges. And charging the Fourth Amendment case if you, if you think about it, charging officers with making a bad arrest, whether or not you want to argue that the arrest of Freddie Gray was for a street-level knife possession charge was a good charge or a bad charge, because it was, it was a pocket knife in his pocket. Mm -hmm. um, what you can say about it is that every other cop in the city said, wait a sec, if I can go to jail for making an arrest that some lawyer later thinks wasn't good, but might be good, I'm not getting out of my car. And so in the immediate aftermath uh, of that, our murder rate went from the low 200s up to the uh, lower and mid 300s, almost instantaneously. Police stopped policing in what can only be described as a year-long drug action, a uh, year-long job action. Mm -hmm. And the police commissioner lost control, and we've been through several administrations, and, and nobody has found a way to restore any kind of police deterrent to Baltimore City. So right. our murder rate is now among the, it's as bad as it ever was. Maybe worse because we've lost 20, 30,000 people 
in the last, you know, I think the census number is going to come in. We're going to be under 600,000 for the first time in a century. Before we leave this subject, David, from your perspective, is there anything that can be done or said to reverse that trend? You've got to abandon the drug war. You've got to realign yourself with the fact that these communities cannot be over-policed, that you cannot expend your resources locking people up for small amounts of, of narcotics. You have to target repeat violent offenders. That's the only way you can reduce violence in your city. They used to tell us the lie of, oh, you know, you lock up a heroin addict and he's going to commit 10 crimes a day. You know, well, not only having gone, the second book I wrote, I went to a drug corner. And the people who were copying, yes, some of them would make a car radio disappear uh, from your dashboard. And some of them would steal something uh, if they could find an open back door. But very few of them were violent. And very few of them. And there were many people who just held jobs and would, you know, get paid and come down to the corner afterwards and get high. And if you spent your resources chasing that, as the Baltimore Police Department and many urban police departments in America did, you wasted your resources. Because what you really needed to be doing was finding out who is shooting people, who is raping people, who is robbing people, and arrest them for those crimes. And use your prison cells and your resources for, for those things. Um, and it was very telling, but in the years where the, rate, the drug arrest rate in Baltimore was, was doubling and then tripling, and they were creating all these stats, the, the arrest rates for major felonies, including murder, rape, robbery, assault, were all declining. Nobody was doing any actual police work. They were just going into people's pockets. And that's a recipe for losing control of your city. So the drug war is the first thing to throw out. You have to go back to policing what, what actually matters. So I want to talk about another subject because I believe in my experience when I was a cop reporter, again, this is 84 to 88, a little bit in Houston, but not very much, only on, on uh, sort of fill-in duty. So it's a third city, but really two cities. Um, as you well know, David, back in those days, if there was an officer-involved shooting, there was one version of the story. And that yeah. was the cop's version of the story. And that's all yeah. you had. And now there were a couple of instances where there were enterprising young uh, idealistic attorneys who put together witness testimony and went together and got their investigators. And then if they found a sympathetic ear, they would talk to a reporter. And sometimes that reporter was me. And sometimes I would dig into it and write a story that would make the cops really angry at me, uh, which I did a couple of times. Uh, but the advent of cell phones in people's hands to document, even if just a portion of what happened or looked like it happened to me, and I'd love your perspective on this, completely changed not only the ba balance of power, but balance of community interpretation of actions and concepts of justice and injustice, particularly in urban America and within a subset of that, the most crime uh, intense parts of urban America. Please run with that. Yeah. Listen, the idea of portable cameras in everyone's hand was a revolution. Um, and it did end the, the just us uh, phenomenon of, of police violence, which is to say, there's no justice here. There's just us. Um, the, the, the word of an officer in court landed more gravitas than that of a civilian, particularly in areas of the city where the, the citizenry is more vulnerable. And by that, I mean, you know, something happens on a corner. Maybe a hot corner, maybe, you know, Edmondson Avenue or Fayette Street in West Baltimore. And half the people out there seeing it might already have 
some criminal history, some, some arrest record, something that a, a prosecutor can use to marginalize their testimony. So that even if they wanted to come into a grand jury and say that they saw poli unnecessary police violence, they would have to run the gauntlet of their entire past. Or if not them, the people who they were living with or the people in their house. Or, hey, you want to come in and make a complaint? Maybe there has to be, we, the first thing we have to do is run a warrant check on you and on everybody who's living with you. Um, there were so many games that could be played. Um, and then the biggest game in terms of uh, police violence is this, that the standard for uh, charging an officer criminally, I'm not saying administratively, but criminally with undue violence against a civilian has always been, and I think remains this, did the officer reasonably think, reasonably believe that if he did not use the force he did, that, him, that he and or other officers and or other civilians would be vulnerable. Emphasis on the word think and de-emphasis on the word reasonably. That's a, that's a truck that any officer, if he knows how to write, can write his way into. Mm -hmm. And so you know, the odds were stacked against anybody uh, report, successfully reporting and prosecuting police violence. Suddenly there was absolute footage of some of these cases. The, the most notable to me was the, the, the one in South Carolina where the officer um, drops a weapon, you know, the, mm -hmm. the use of a drop weapon after he shot somebody who was unarmed. Um, the fact that they caught that on, on tape is, is defining and, ma and magical. And it, it's changed the dynamic. It's made it so that bad officers who only knew how to control people through the use of excessive violence, a lot of them are not getting out of the cars anymore. And some of them have left and some of them have, have, have run afoul of the cameras. And it's, it's led to police departments having to reassess how they police, and rightly so. Right. And they put cameras on their officers, not because they wanted to, in my opinion, in my, from my perspective, but because they had to. They wanted a second set of cameras there. If they were doing right. their, as they, as they did know, there were going to be cameras, they wanted their own cameras there. Right. You know, I, when I was in the homicide unit, when they would get a suspect who had either fought the police or been beaten by the police on the street, you know, uh, on the way to arrest. Once he came out of the wagon down the homicide unit, they were very careful to take pictures of every single injury because they wanted to be clear that whatever statements and whatever investigation, whatever interrogation happened afterwards, that there was no violence in the interrogation room. Right. <laughs> they were trying to segregate <laughs> the street violence and make sure that you understood. No, 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 that happened on the street earlier. We didn't touch him, you know. Exactly. Exactly. David, I know you've got other things to do. Uh, thank you for dealing with the technological hurdles, all of which we got over. Uh, it's been a delight. Uh, we had planned, of course, as you well know, to do this in person over a meal, which is our favorite method of doing this show. If uh, you'll indulge me in the future, let's try to do that when we get on the other side of this. That's fine. I'll do the meal even without the interview. It's always <laughs> good to get a meal. That's great. David Simon, thank you so very much. Pleasure. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Zoe Poindexter, and Jake Rosen. CBSN production by Eric Susanen, Grace Seegers, and Daniel Peebles. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS Audio. If you like the takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go... 
Tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Some puzzles are hard to solve. Others are hard to prove. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Access episodes early and ad-free with 48 Hours Plus on Apple Podcasts.